Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. In 2017, we began the Fireplace Series, a series of interdisciplinary conversations, impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity, and together they explore common and uncommon ground. The Fireplace Conversation you are about to hear took place on the 27th of March, 2018, between Dr. Leslie Topp, Head of the Department of History and Art and Reader in History and Architecture at Burbank, University of London, and Dr. Lisa Gunter, Queen's National Scholar in Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies at Queen's University. The topic of their talk together is A Room of One's Own, Liberation and Confinement in the Single Room. My name is Alison Moorhead, and I'm an associate professor here at Queen's in art history, also affiliated with the Cultural Studies program. On behalf of the library, the Faculty of Arts and Science, the Departments of Geography and Planning, and Art History and Art Conservation, it's my privilege to welcome you here to this conversation. And it's also my privilege to acknowledge the fact that we gather together today on the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Today, we bring together two scholars who've been thinking about solitude, solitary confinement, and liberation from the perspectives of architectural history and political philosophy. And I'm going to introduce them in turn. Leslie Topp, who is here on my immediate left, is here as an international visiting scholar supported by the Principles Development Fund. So she's engaged in a number of activities uh, on campus this week. She's a reader in history of architecture and head of the Department of History of Art at Birkbeck University of London. Her book, which I have a copy of here, if anybody would like to look at it, Freedom in the Cage, Modern Architecture and Psychiatry in Central Europe, 1890 to 1914, was published in 2017 by Penn State University Press. And she is also the author of Architecture and Truth in Fantasiecle Vienna, which appeared with Cambridge University Press in 2004. She co-edited Madness, Architecture, and the Built Environment with Routledge in 2007, and co-curated the international exhibition Madness and Modernity, Mental Illness and the Visual Arts in Vienna 1900, which took place at the Wellcome Collection in London and then traveled to the Wien Museum in Vienna uh, in 2009 to 2010. She is currently working on various permutations of single rooms in 19th century psychiatric architecture. And her article, Single Rooms, Seclusion and the Non-Restraint Movement in British Asylums, 1838 to 1844, excuse me, was recently published in the journal Social History of Medicine. Uh, to my far left is Lisa Gunter, who is a Queen's National Scholar in Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies. She is the author of Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives from 2013, and The Gift of the Other, Levinus and the, the Politics of Reproduction from 2007, and co-editor of Death and Other Penalties, Philosophy in a Time of Mass Incarceration with in from 2015, which she co-edited with Jeffrey Adelsberg and Scott Zeman. She's currently working on a book about incarceration, reproductive politics, 
and settler colonialism in Canada, Australia, and the United States. Recent articles include On Pain of Death, The Grotesque Sovereignty of the U.S. Death Penalty, which appeared in the Edinburgh Companion to the Critical Medical Humanities in 2016. Also, A Critical Phenomenology of Solidarity and Resistance in the 2013 California Prison Hunger Strikes, which appeared in Body, Self, Other, The Phenomenology of Social Encounters in 2017. And finally, well, not finally, but, you know, <laughs> finally on my list, We Charge Genocide, Anti-Black Racism and the United States as Genocidal Structural Violence in Logics of Genocide, an article that's forthcoming. As a public philosopher, Gunter's work has appeared in the New York Times, The Chronicle of Higher Education, E.ON, and CBC's Ideas. A quick word about the format. So these scholars have only recently encountered each other, and myself and Laura had the privilege of being present for this encounter, as well as our colleague uh, Cameron there. Uh, they met at the Penitentiary Museum uh, here in Kingston for the first time. And uh, the idea is that they hadn't met before. The idea is that this is a sort of relatively recent encounter and that we will, as a group, um, and they as scholars will attempt to encourage a freewheeling discussion, uh, first between the two of them, and then we're gonna open up that discussion to the rest uh, of you in the room. Um, so the first question that um, I wanted to pose as a starting point today is um, how, is the idea of solitude, how is solitude different from solitary confinement? And how might these two concepts or experiences uh, be related? Right, <laughs> so here we are, it's a bit like reality TV. <laughs> We're <laughs> Blind in the box. date, we're in the box. <laughs> um, shall I Go have ahead, yeah. a, a start at that? Uh, I mean, the, the obvious thing that comes to mind is the, that solitude has positive connotations, obviously, uh, whereas certainly solitary confinement doesn't. And that, that the, the thing that differentiates them has to do, something to do with personal volition and whether one is uh, choosing to be alone or being forced to be alone. That seems to be probably what it comes down to. Um, but something that I'm quite interested in is that there might be a blurrier line between those two things than we might imagine. So, um, so Kafka apparently said, and it's not a direct quote, but he talked in his diaries about uh, wanting that, that his ideal conditions for writing were to be um, in a little room in a basement somewhere, a kind of dungeon type room, uh, with the door locked and someone else having the key, right? And uh, uh, and that it's funny, isn't it? And we can all kind of relate to that to a certain extent as we get up to make yet another cup of tea or check our email or whatever it is. That idea of enforced isolation and the a kind of attention, I suppose, that that created. And the, he also talks about, you know, if you just sit in a room for long enough, the ideas will start to come to you. And that is not all about... Um, separating oneself from other people uh, in a kind of positive sense and choosing solitude, but kind of forcing yourself to be alone um, and, uh, and therefore creating that kind of, um, this strange hybrid that is some sort of um, chosen incar self-incarceration uh, in order to, to achieve, yeah, intellectual freedom or intellectual productivity. 
So I might start with that idea that they might not be as necessarily far apart as we might think. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. <laughs> um, for me, I guess what's at stake in the distinction between solid solitude and solitary confinement uh, has to do with relationality and the relationality of personhood. Um, so I, I approach solitary confinement from a phenomenological perspective, thinking of the person not as an isolatable unit, but as being in the world, as a thoroughly relational creature. And so for me, solitude supports relationality and sort of opens us up to different forms of relationality. Maybe I have to think more about the Kafka example because um, it's interesting that he desires a certain kind of enforcement of uh, isolation, perhaps, and being at the mercy of another person to enforce that, but that it's precisely this... um, closure of some relationships that opens up a different sort of imaginative relationship to the, the, the narratives that he will hopefully write. Um, but for me, the isolation of solitary confinement is, uh, it is a form of relationality. Someone is in control of the door and the limits that uh, separate you from an open-ended relationship to the world. But it's a, it's a form of relationality that undermines the uh, relational capacities of the person who's locked in. Um, And so I think there are some, you know, Malcolm X also talks about how his time in solitary confinement was a time when he, being locked away from uh, most other people, found uh, a pathway to the outside through books and through reading. And he was able to have access to a library, and he just read the dictionary, and he read everything that he could. And so in this, in the confines of what I would call uh, isolation, he was able to open up a pathway to a different form of relationality. Mm. Um, but it's a question that comes up at any, every time I give a talk on solitary confinement. Someone asks, well, but don't, isn't solitude good? And, you know, if I, sometimes people will say, if I were locked away, I would be so relieved because I could just <laughs> have some time to myself. And, and I think it's really important. The voluntary-involuntary distinction mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, what's at, part of what's at stake in that distinction, I think, is um, whether or not there's a situation in which your relational capacities as a person is supported or undermined. And it has a lot to do, doesn't it, with, um, with time? Right? Yes, yes. yes. And so, uh, so solitary confinement always implies that, it is, that there is a, a long duration there or that there's some kind of defined duration, defined by someone else. Yeah. yeah? Right. Yeah. I mean, would you say, would, do, do you have kind of a working definition for yourself of how long one needs to be locked away to call it solitary confinement? Or would be, it's really just the issue of whether you yourself have locked the door or someone else has? Well, the, the UN has a basic threshold. They, they recognize anything more than 15 days in extreme isolation in prison as torture. Okay. So I don't know. Right. It's somewhat arbitrary, but yeah, it well, has... I wonder, any idea how they came up with that 15 days? Um, it has a bit to do with... Um, 
psychiatric studies of at what point uh, people's capacity to perceive clearly, to remember, mm. to think, to, to kind of sustain a sequence of, of uh, clear, legible um, thought processes mm -hmm. starts to break down. And so mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with the, the sensory and perceptual and cognitive impact of being isolated from other people and also locked into a space that has very little visual and other forms of stimulus, mm -hmm. even if it also has um, sort of booming, echoing sound and in some ways is a kind of um, overstimulation. Mm. Yeah, because that, I guess that's, so there's the, the issue of who has the key in a way. Yes. Yeah, there's the time issue. Yeah. And there's the, the nature of the physical surroundings. Yes. Uh, and yeah. the, um, the outlets that those have to something else beyond the room, probably. So right. a window, for right. instance. I mean, it's interesting to think about, about windows and Definitely. whether there is one. Yes. If there is one, whether you can see through it, which is an important issue because yes. uh, I know this from my work on psychiatric hospitals that there, um, you can study different types of rooms in which people are isolated. And, uh, and a, a, a key issue in, that designers have thought about for centuries is does that room get a standard kind of window that you would expect, you know, like this one where you can easily, uh, as a person of normal height, stand and look out of it or sit by it and enjoy the light from it and the view? Um, or is it, in some cases, they, they're raised up very high in the wall, mm -hmm. so all they provide is light, yeah. um, and uh, with no view out and no access. Uh, they might be covered with a wire mesh of some kind uh, to avoid breaking the glass, and, and so the window is not just a, a, a vessel for seeing uh, and for light, but also a, a material thing that can be turned into a weapon of some sort, yes. and, a, um, and or can be escaped through. That's the other. So windows yeah. become these really complicated, quite fraught things. Um, and and the other thing that there's lots and lots of um, discussion given to is it's the, the escape issue. Is uh, those mullions between um, the, the different panes of glass. Can we make those out of iron so uh -huh. that they so that the window uh, really is an impenetrable thing and it's the the barred window that one always imagines on a on a prison or or on an asylum? Yeah. Yeah. So I've so. I've been thinking a lot about windows as yeah. well. In the early penitentiary system in Eastern State Penitentiary, they constructed these cells to be like a grave, so you would feel like you were buried alive. And the only window was uh, a circular opening in the in the ceiling that they called the God's eye. And so there's a whole mm -hmm. kind of political theology and, and also a whole sort of theory of the person that is bound up with this construction of that space. Uh, the idea was that, you know, people who commit crimes have been contaminated and corrupted by influences of the world. They need to be removed from the world and sort of shut down the way you shut down your laptop when it's <laughs> acting up and wait 10 seconds. Uh, but this, you know, this sort of uh, understanding of the of the person as a kind of mechanism that can get too much improper stimulation and needs to be redirected and reoriented so that its soul will turn upwards towards disconnecting from corrupting influences in the world, but reconnecting uh, relationship between their soul and God. And if we look yeah. at you know, so if that's the beginning of the penitentiary system that had these aspirations to redeem and reform and um, in some ways break down the person so that it 
so that that person could be built back up or reemerge as uh, a citizen who is um, capable and willing of um, being in community with others. The supermax prisons at the other end of that sort of temporal continuum um, are often either windowless, but the lights, fluorescent lights, are left on 24 hours a day, sometimes dimmed at night, but you never have complete darkness. Um, or there were, in the 70s, these windowless cells that were complete blackout cells where people were absolutely in darkness. And even the food trays would be um, administered to them through this, this uh, revolving mechanism that meant that no light would even come in when the food was delivered. Um, but in the, I used to uh, facilitate a discussion group at a maximum security prison in Nashville. And there, there were windows, but they were very thin and they were precisely designed to um, adhere to the basic standards of access to natural light that had been established through prisoner litigation in the 70s and 80s, um, but not to allow too much sight uh, uh, not to allow the prisoner to see very much on the outside and certainly not allow them to squeeze through. And so they're very narrow and they're mm -hmm. designed um, to anticipate a certain kind of body with certain sorts of desires and capacities and to foreclose those. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, a, that's very beautifully put. And um, that idea of anticipating a body wanting to do certain things in a room. Uh, yes. And so escape is one of those. Um, destruction is yes. another one, isn't it? And so the indestructible room becomes something that's shared between prison and, and uh, psychiatric contexts. Um, uh, and the, the one thing I've been, I'm interested in and I'm only just starting um, to work on is the history of the padded cell. Um, in psychiatric contexts, uh, which, which I have been interested to find. I mean, it doesn't originate at, at when non-restraint comes in. So, so non, uh, Alison mentioned, I've recently published an article on the relationship between what's called seclusion, so the locking of uh, psychiatric patients in rooms by themselves, the relationship between that and what was called the non-restraint movement in Britain, which was a very important um, uh, moment in the history of psychiatry in the late 1830s, uh, um, early 1840s, John Connolly was a figure that's associated with it, a, a asylum superintendent, where all the kind of uh, physical paraphernalia of um, straight jackets, um, manacles, straps, uh, anything that was supposed to, was called a mechanical restraint that actually restrained the limbs of the patient was, um, was abolished from the asylum. And uh, and the sense was that there needed to be something to replace this for the most disturbed patients and the most destructive patients. And so Connolly um, uh, really advocated seclusion as the alternative to mechanical restraint. And, and it, what he was advocating was not 15 days locked away mm -hmm. in a room alone. Um, and he, he never imagined it as punitive, or at least he never wrote about it as punitive, although I imagine in, under his um, you know, direction at the asylum he ran, it probably was used in a punitive way. Uh, it was more a few hours in a room. Um, and he then, quite soon, so, so the room he imagines this happening in is a, the standard room that every patient in his asylum was allocated, which was their bedroom, the, the room they spent the night in. Um, and 
But there would be this other type of room that he felt was necessary for patients that, as we say, had destructive impulses. And if they were put in a room, um, in, a, in their own bedroom, He's, you know, he uh, wanted to avoid them then ripping up all the sheets or breaking the windows or doing any number of other things. And so he, in a way, um, brings back something that had existed before, but he makes it much more widespread, which is the padded, padded room, as he called it. And he goes into great detail describing that it had... Um, the entire floor was like a mattress. Uh, there were, you know, upholstered walls as high up as the patient could feasibly reach, and then really intricate, quite ingenious things that Connolly does, and then various others that I've come across who are kind of rethinking and reinventing this kind of room uh, that are all about anticipating, as you say, mm -hmm. what a person could do to this physical entity that they are, have been locked inside of. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... so and that, that, in the end, becomes the kind of epitome, doesn't it, of the institutional space, the padded cell. Yes. You know, it become, it's used as a kind of synonym for institutions generally, isn't yes. it? Um, and that interests me, how that... I think that's probably quite early on that people start to make that connection. And, but, it, but it's coming out of a, a whole set of ideas that are supposed to be progressive, supposed to be humanitarian, about, um, about not constraining people's limbs, not um, shackling them. You know, and so there's a kind of liberation uh, impulse that's associated with the padded room, which seems so counterintuitive to us, but uh, but that that has to do, is, I think, with the body coming up against the limits of the room and interacting with that as a thing rather than just as this neutral container. Yes, you know? yeah, I was fascinated by your work on the on the padded cell and this desire to make those hard, inexorable sort of thresholds of the wall softer mm -hmm. and less menacing to distinguish the asylum as a therapeutic environment mm -hmm. from the prison as a punitive environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about also how um, the walls of uh, cells in prisons are, they're designed to be hard, not soft. Mm -hmm. um, but people who inhabit those rooms soften up the, the boundaries of the wall often by using uh, whatever they can, the, the ventilation system. You can't have a, a prison without a ventilation system, but you can't have a ventilation system without some kind of weakness in that wall. Um, and so the prisoners at Pelican Bay State Prison, which is a supermax prison in California, used the um, ventilation system, the vents, to uh, speak to one another and to organize the largest hunger strikes in state history which eventually led, they also organized a class action lawsuit. And between the pressure put on by the hunger strikes and the lawsuit, they ended up changing the policy of uh, solitary confinement and more broadly of gang uh, validation or labeling people as gang members and beyond solitary. Um, but they also used the plumbing. So you can't have, or you, you can't have um, prison cells without uh, plumbing and without toilets or running water. Um, but if you want to lock people in their cells for 23 hours a day and you don't want them to be um, fouling their cells, you need to have some plumbing. And so uh, they would scoop out the water from the, from the toilets and use that as a kind of amplifier of their voices. And so mm -hmm. that's, those are some of the ways in which even though 
the designers of those spaces have anticipated uh, the desire to escape and to, to communicate with other people mm. and tried to foreclose that, that, that when you're in that space and you have that desire, there are ways of opening up the, the walls and using them as a kind of threshold or transforming them into a kind of threshold rather than simply a barrier that mm. separates you mm. from other people. Interesting. Related to that is, and something that I've really been thinking about in um, uh, getting to know these Kingston institutions, um, is the uh, the phenomenon in a prison cell of, uh, rather than having any kind of door, uh, so one of the walls basically consists of a grid of iron, so the, the prison bars that we all think about, right, uh, are... Um, are something to think about. You know, they, they, uh, they're interesting in themselves. So, um, so the, the idea in the Kingston Penitentiary uh, was that you could be very easily inspected as you're inside your cell at night. And that is, that is made possible by uh, not creating a solid door, um, but rather creating this open work, this um, transparent kind of um, element uh, of the cell. Uh, both at the front and the back, and and um, so the 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 cells in the Kingston Penitentiary, and also which I'll talk about tomorrow in my talk, the the first designs for Rockwood, which were, weren't in the end executed, they separate the cell entirely from the outer walls of the building, right? So the they are ranges of cells um, that exist almost as a separate structure. Um, within the building, uh, and then there's a well in the Kingston Penitentiary and in other um, similar types of penitentiaries, Sing Sing and Auburn, it's the kind of system that was developed in the U.S. There are these wells of space um, between the, the, the cells and the outer walls. So there are windows in the prison, but those windows don't have any relationship to the cells inside, except that they generally bring light into the structure, which then accesses the cell through this, these iron bars uh, that are that have openings in them. Um, and, uh, and so the, the, the prisoner gets only a view of another interior uh, and a view of all the mechanisms around uh, him or her that are, are made for, for controlling his or her movements and, and for inspection. So there was a particularly interesting and, and slightly grim thing in the Kingston Penitentiary that I'm not aware of as having existed in other penitentiaries, though. Um, it might have, which is that the, the cells, rather than being back-to-back, -back, which was the standard formation that um, in the American models that the planners of Kingston were looking at, they separated them out into kind of two separate ranges. And I'm looking at you, Cameron, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Cameron here is our expert on the King Kingston Penitentiary. Um, there was a, a corridor then built between them um, that was a, a, you called it a duct, right? And it was a kind of duct both for uh, infrastructural stuff, uh, but also for people, for inspection, for guards. And so they could move along this corridor and then look in to the cells of the individual prisoners without themselves being seen. And if people have read their Foucault, that's going to sound familiar because it's the panopticon idea, except that the, so the panopticon developed by Jeremy Bentham in the late 18th century, um, is a circular mode, which was hardly ever built. It was just impractical and it couldn't be expanded easily and so on. Uh, but it seems, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if those Kingston Penitentiary planners were, were reading their Bentham um, because that idea of the guard who can inspect without 
being seen. And, and getting back to our cells, the idea of the cell as a place of, in, of um, enclosure that is at the same time a place of exposure, right? So a place that someone uh, can't, cannot hide from, um, from the people that want to keep track of what they're doing and can't get up. And, and so the, the, pri the privacy element of the single room is entirely negated um, yes. and subverted. And I imagine that's the case in a lot of the cells you're looking at too, but through uh, technological means of cameras and so yes, on. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So in the, in the prison where I volunteered in Nashville, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, um, it was built in 1989. And so it was built as... Um, in a pod formation. And so the idea is that you have one a central area which you may or may not let people who are incarcerated there enter into. Um, and it depends on uh, their security level. It also depends on the norms and the uh, willingness of uh, correctional officers to um, allow people even who are theoretically allowed out of their cells to enter that space. And there are all kinds of ways in which, you know, the prison might be put on lockdown because something happened on the other side of the prison. And so you in your little self-contained pod are not allowed out into this common area. But there are then two tiers of cells around that central pod. Uh, and about, <clears throat> I guess, in, in that particular unit, maybe 30, maybe 40 cells total. And so um, the, the men that I was uh, in conversation with were all on death row, and they had all spent at least about 18 years on death row. Um, the longest that someone had spent in our group on death row was 28 years. So they knew that space, and they had come into that prison when it was first built, and they'd come there from uh, an older penitentiary-style prison that they called The Walls, which was infested with rats and, you know, a horrible space. But they found that space in this pod formation even more constricting than the, um, like, the stone walls and the terrible facilities that they had come from. Um, and in the midst of having conversations about um, a variety of different issues and text, we read Foucault's, uh, the section on panopticism. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished to find that the, the people who were incarcerated did not, they analyzed the panopticon uh, and disciplinary power, not as applying to themselves, but as applying to the guards. And so mm -hmm. from their perspective, the, at, at this moment, like in the, in the 21st century, Guards are not interested enough. The prison administration is not interested enough in prisoners to monitor their behavior and to be inspecting them all the time and, and producing knowledge on the basis of their movements and behavior. They, they're put in a cell. Uh, the doors are remotely open and closed. They have security cameras in the cell and outside in the, the common area of the pod. But nobody seems to care enough to discipline you. But they thought it's the guards who are disciplined by the wardens and associate mm -hmm. wardens. And the security cameras are there to monitor their behavior as much as or more than the, the people who are incarcerated. So they thought, Foucault has some good ideas, but they don't apply to us. Right. Yeah. 
That's funny. Well, I'm not sure they're right, actually, because yeah. I think Foucault, yeah, I think Foucault yeah. was onto that, too. There's yeah, also, yes, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nobody thinks that they're normalized. Yeah. <laughs> and also that the, 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 there, um, there was a lot of inspection of, certainly I'm thinking of this in the psychiatric context, mm-hmm. that part of this kind of move towards the more humane, uh, in quotation marks, institution was that there, had, there was an awareness that there was a very strong tendency uh, of attendants, as they were called, to abuse patients. And that if we had a different kind of architectural configuration, we could keep an eye on those attendants too and, and prevent those kind of secret abuses from happening. So that the, the whole imp- there's a very strong impulse towards transparency um, and uh, uh, things like installing kind of glazed doorways and, making sh- and long corridors that you can see all the way down. But the single room is a real problem in that whole thing. So uh, there's a, a tension throughout in psychiatric architecture about uh, isolating patients, but that undermining the transparency of the institution. And, and that um, rubbing the wrong way when against... Uh, so in Britain, for instance, there's very early on a, 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 a quite a rigorous inspection regime. Um, there's the, they're called the Commissioners for Lunacy, right? And the Commissioners for Lunacy um, go and give, you know, regularly visit all these institutions. Uh, and, uh, and there are lots of narratives of them finding, you know, um, uh, some outbuilding where a bunch of patients have been confined in old um, kind of uh, stalls that were meant for animals, which actually has a connection to what happened here in Kingston, um, where the Female patients were originally in the stables of um, over at Rockwood before the the institution was ready to be moved into. But anyway, so that idea that that um, inspection is all about finding and revealing abuses that are happening behind closed doors, um, and and that that's a familiar. Uh, kind of pattern now that it sounds like with, um, you know, all the controversies about solitary confinement, that idea that this is happening outside, you know, it's happening in the name of the state, but in an utterly concealed way, uh, you know, quite literally someone is locked away, hidden away, never seen. Um, and so, the, yeah, the tension between that and the desire for something open, transparent, uh, both in terms of monitoring the, the, the uh, patients or inmates and their behavior, and in terms of monitoring the institution as a potentially oppressive thing in the name of the state. Yeah. Right, So yeah. I think both things are going on. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about, about prisons, and I suspect that this might apply to mental health institutions as well, is the way in which those bureaucratic checks and balances that are supposed to facilitate transparency can also be precisely what compounds the isolation of people in those institutions and the possibility or the, the the leeway, the room for abuse. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the about the death of Ashley Smith here in Canada, where she was at Grand Valley Prison for Women, under constant video surveillance, uh, and uh, in a solitary confinement unit, and took her life while correctional officers were watching and did not and they did not intervene. And so there's a way in which you can you can be subject or engaging in constant surveillance without necessarily seeing what that surveillance mechanism is designed putatively to reveal. Mm. Um, And so I guess it's a a difference between seeing as registering some visual (laughs) Mm. um, input 
and seeing and understanding and um, paying attention mm. to what is what is happening. And, and I wonder if it has something to do with the the reciprocal quality of that. Yes, right. So if that right. the person you're seeing can't see you yes. and can't see that you are seeing them, yeah. It, it, it creates an entirely different set of obligations or exactly. a set of possible reactions to that. Yeah. 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 And interesting to think as far, as long ago as Bentham and the Kingston Pen, they were trying to set up those systems, you know, before cameras, but that, that anticipated cameras that right. could see without being seen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, what you just said also raises the issue of gender, of course, the examples that, that you gave, um, and also mentioning the, the women in the stables. And of mm -hmm. course, our title was meant to evoke this famous text by Virginia Woolf mm -hmm. in which she called for a room of one's own as a, as a liberating um, mechanism. And I just wonder if you could address this issue of, of how solitude and solitary might have different valences depending on one's gender identity. Um, well, I might. I, I kind of reread the Virginia Woolf uh, on my way over here, and it was great to go back to that text. And it, thinking about it again with my kind of single rooms hat on, um, because it's a. It, I found it very interesting. First of all, that she calls it a room of one's own, because it's really not all she's talking about at all in that mm -hmm. text. You know, yeah. it's really a text about literature and um, and why have there been no great women writers to take the, uh, the, the name of a famous art historical essay, why have there been no great women artists? That's really what she's talking about, is, that, is what the material conditions are behind the fact that we don't know, you know, until the 19th century or the 18th century of um, prominent women writers of the status of Shakespeare or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so, so, but and the room is one of the things that the that those women were denied um, that uh, that would have made it possible for them to do that. But it's but she in the in a way the room is a kind of flippant thing because it's really all about money and power, right? And 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 you know she she writes in this incredible you know she kind of lightly skips across all these hugely important things. You know, while obviously acknowledging their importance, but it's a very British kind of writing, isn't it? You know, with very light but very serious at the same time. Um, you know, the 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 whole legal framework around women's rights, the uh, yeah, the inability to hold on to your own property. You know, they, she talks about this conversation that these two women are having in there at um, at one of the women's colleges at Cambridge, and they're saying, you know, they're having to eat. Um, this horrible meal in the dining hall, whereas all their male, uh, you know, fellow students are eating gorgeous feasts at their colleges, and and they're blaming their mothers for not having made the money to give to the college to endow, <laughs> and then they of course realize that that's that's ridiculous. Um, but anyway, so the room of one's own uh, is just a kind of one element in all of that. Um, but it, I do find it interesting that she called it that, um, and and I I also detected this. I guess I'm always on the alert for these kind of ambivalent or ambiguous qualities about the single room, where on the one hand, she, uh, the room of one's own is very important. And it's interesting, she doesn't just call it a room, any old room of one's own. So it's not just that you need your own room somewhere in the house. It's your own sitting room. Mm -hmm. yeah? right. And uh, that to me means that bedrooms aren't enough, you know, that some kind of functional room where you sleep at night and of course, keeping in mind that if you're a married woman, you probably wouldn't have that either as your own space, um, unless you were really of a, a very upper class. 
Um, but uh, but it's your own, she calls it a sitting room, and I think she must mean a study, you know, a, a kind of work room, a room for work. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, the, 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 so, so yeah, the ambiguity is that she, she wants that, but the, she talks a lot in her analysis of women's history of, the, of women being locked away. Uh, you know, of a kind of confinement of women in the domestic realm. Uh, and at one point she gives this quite um, visceral example, I think, that she's picked out of some account that she found somewhere, of a woman who wanted to uh, to go off into the world and make her way as a poet, being, um, being locked up inside by her parents and, uh, you know, physically constrained, presumably in a room in the house, from going out and doing that. So the room kind of performs those two functions within the text in a really interesting way that uh, uh, where, where women are caught without the room for some purposes but are confined to it for other purposes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting. I, so when I was thinking about the title, I was, I was meditating mostly on the own and ownership of a room of myself. Yes, own. yeah. yeah. And thinking about how... Um, so a lot of the work that I've been doing on the intersections of reproductive justice and carceral politics is thinking about how um, white middle class women's movements have often been um, promoting their own interests at the expense of women of color, of indigenous women, of women with disabilities, lesbian and trans women, and uh, thinking about how any room of one's own in on Turtle Island is also, it's presupposing settler colonialism. So how do we think about the re very real need for a room of one's own, uh, for a space uh, and power and uh, resources, money, mm. um, to pursue uh, one's desires and to articulate oneself in writing or otherwise without building that room on the foundation of stolen land and on the foundation of um, the, the disinheriting of large groups of women from that, from those forms of ownership. So I've been thinking about, in particular, the kind of complicity of um, first wave and second wave feminism with eugenics and with uh, uh, the failure of second wave feminists to support uh, the, the movements uh, by women of color against sterilization uh, while uh, campaigning for access to reproductive choices, uh, really narrowly defined as the choice not to have, not to give birth, mm -hmm. access to contraception and to abortion. And all of this is connected to the work that I've been doing on prisons uh, because, for many different reasons, but one of them is because uh, in the United States in particular, and so much of my work on prisons has been in the U.S. context, um, there, there have been since the 80s uh, all of these efforts to criminalize uh, the, the activity of pregnant women, whether it's... Uh, criminalizing the use of drugs by, by pregnant women or using laws against um, child abuse or distributing drugs to a minor 
to apply to fetuses and charging women with, um, with those offenses with respect to their fetuses. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's sort of a, a, the way I'm thinking about the very real need for a room of one's own, I think needs to be in the context of also thinking about uh, the politics of ownership and the politics of land. Mm. So how is the room related to the institutions or larger spaces, sometimes domestic spaces, sometimes uh, public institutions, within which that room is embedded, but then also how are those institutions related to land or territory and to boundaries? Yeah. And actually, you mentioned before we um, started our public, the par- public part of our conversation, <laughs> that you'd been doing some work on borders or boundaries mm. Um, as well as looking at this sort of more micro level of the of the room. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. That that um, in institutional contexts that uh, you you have the interior spaces in the way they're divided up, but you also have grounds in the way they're divided up, and uh, and opportunities for privacy and seclusion there. But also, you know, it's also a very public realm. But but what comes to mind? You know, so thinking about your points about ownership, class, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, and the, I think that's a, probably a very important critique of Virginia Woolf's text, going back to that. The, and, and I can relate this to a building I know very well because I work in it, and uh, I'll talk about, about it tomorrow. But um, so the Birkbeck, the School of Arts at Birkbeck, where I work, is in a Georgian terrace on Gordon Square. And the Stevens siblings, so Virginia... Um, Vanessa and their brother Toby, their parents died. They'd lived in Kensington, a much posher part of London. They then moved to the much more kind of bohemian Bloomsbury and rent um, a terraced house, which is now part of the School of Arts at Birkbeck. Oh, wow. And, uh, and um, one of my colleagues has Virginia's room. Uh, no so way. They, they, took, <laughs> they took what was a, a family house um, and made it into kind of a... Um, shared workspace for all of them. So they were all engaged in various artistic and intellectual pursuits. You know, Vanessa was a painter, Virginia was writing. I think the brother was also writing, I'm not sure. Um, but so instead of, you know, the usual uh, common rooms, the drawing room and the sitting room and all that, it was a studio, it was, you know, and, and a, a bedroom up in the, the rafters became Virginia's workroom. But of course, there were also servants' quarters, right? And uh, so down in the basement, you've got, and people have studied Virginia and her servants. She wasn't very nice to them. And, um, and, and they were servants, you know, and they, and they, people have seen servants' bedrooms before, probably. You know, they're, they're often very tiny, um, uh, Spartan kind of spaces. Um, uh, and often uh, servants had to share bedrooms. Um, so on the one hand, you, yeah, you might have a share. I can't. I, I must go and look at this. I'm not actually sure what the setup was in this particular house. It's all, of course, been ripped out and converted into classrooms and things. But um, it would be interesting to think about that. So Virginia up in the, yes. in the loft with this view of Gordon Square, the servant only in you know, non-working hours, so in whatever sleep hours she had in her little room, presumably down in the basement, uh, a room that she could have been turfed out of at any point. Right. Yeah, so that idea of, uh, even though you know, w- the house wasn't owned by the Stevens and they could have been turfed out if the landlord wanted to, but they have obviously had much more, um, kind of in terms of their resources and so on, much more control over that space. And she was there 
it was very important to them that they were kind of equal participants in this household. You know, there were no parental units there anymore. And that was all about, you know, her kind of creative freedom was all founded on that right. kind of scenario that yeah. they specifically moved to Bloomsbury to achieve. Um, but, you know, they weren't doing their own washing up and making their own beds. Right. <laughs> Someone and else one was doing can that. imagine a kind of nascent Virginia Woolf doing the washing up and not having a room of her own and, mm. or having this, you know, shared kind of cramped quarters <laughs> yeah. that uh, uh, were both uh, a site of kind of, um, like a, both a place to live and recover from the the labors of the day and also a con con place of confinement. Mm. Not, uh, not in the, under the same conditions as confinement in an institution, mm. but uh, confinement by practical circumstances that don't give you a wide range mm. of options to exercise your freedom and creativity. Mm. Mm. Or to be out in the world. Yes. Uh, yeah. And right. that's another thing that, that struck me about the Virginia Woolf text is that she's always looking through windows. Yeah? It's a, uh -huh. She's got this position of the observer of urban life. Um, and, uh, and it's very interesting because she talks about the women having been denied that ability to be out in the world the way, say, Dickens was, you know, roaming the streets of London at night. Um, and yet her position that she adopts is, you know, the, that position of being out in the world is one somehow in a room behind a window looking out at people coming and going. There are a lot of passages like that in the book. Um, so it's a, an, a kind of interior outsideness. <laughs> yeah. mm. Is it a good time to throw it open we, to yes, the audience, yes, I think? I just wondered if there's any um, philosophy about mirrors. We've talked a lot about windows, but and the idea of relational um, spaces. So mirrors create a space where you see yourself within the space. And apart from the fact that mirrors can be broken and become dangerous objects, is there any talk of mirrors, use of mirrors as a, as a treatment or a punishment, or you know, the fact that you could see yourself in this solitary space? Well, often, often in prison, you you don't have a mirror, and I would imagine this is in asylums as well. That you, a mirror is a dangerous object because it can be broken and used to as a weapon, or a, you know, a weapon against others, or also self harm. Um, and so, often, if you are in prison, you'll have you might have some kind of polished steel or something that you can sort of see your reflection in. But um, there's a lot of contraband in. Prisons and one a very um, important thing to have is if you have if you're in a cell that has bars and you can stick your hand out of them to have a mirror means you have a window up and down the mm. the the range and you can uh, you can have a conversation a face to face conversation if you have two people with mirrors and you can you know reflect. Uh, and so there's a beautiful uh, pencil drawing out of Pelican Bay uh, where they don't actually have open, open bars. But uh, it is of a person who is using the mirror to look at the, the viewer of the image and to draw that person into a relationship. And I guess in some ways this is, um, it's, it's not reversing the, um, visual order and the power relationship of the panopticon so much as shifting and opening it 
in a different direction, triangulating it to pull someone who's outside of that institution into seeing their own implication in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, haven't, I haven't read any kind of discussion of mirrors, uh, although I'm sure the same kind of idea was there, it, certainly in rooms that were for more destructive patients, people that were called destructive, that you, would, you wouldn't want something like that there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you, I'll show an image. Uh, in fact, we looked at it, Joan, when we, uh, when we were at the archive yesterday. Uh, I'll show an image in my talk of a single room from Rockwood that has quite a grand uh, kind of um, table mirror uh, of the you oh, know, yeah, traditional thanks. type. Um, and um, and the, the, that would have been, I imagine, seen as just a kind of standard accoutrement for any kind of bedroom because a bedroom is also a place of grooming and self-care. Um, and so, uh, so that was probably quite significant that they had, it was one of, it's one of the most prominent pieces of furnishings in the room, that mirror. And it would be interesting to, to think that through, um, the, the importance of that and the, the, what kind of um, behavior was, trying, was being encouraged by, by having that there, yeah. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, you touched on it a little bit at the beginning, just talking about um, bodily restraint um, in psychiatric spaces and the kind of psychological effects of that. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak to that more and, and maybe speak to it also in terms of um, imprisonment. Sure. Um, like, So, um, yeah, so it was a standard in British institutions until the 1840s, and then over in North America, Canada and the U.S., much later, I think it's in Kingston, I understand it was in the 1870s that they finally took um, straitjackets and all uh, devices of mechanical restraint out of the institution. Um, And uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been much study of I mean, people know that they were there. They almost only get attention in the history of psychiatry when they're to be abolished, if you see what I mean. (laughs) Uh, um, And there's an interesting thing going on there, too, it seems to me, that is an echo of anti-slavery and abolition, because the abolition term is used uh, about the abolition of mechanical restraints. Um, And uh, and, uh, in um, abolitionist uh, anti-slavery uh, discourses, you visual discourses, you often get pictures of chains, don't you, and chains being broken. And um, so I think there is something going on there uh, because they are they have similar kind of rhetoric, the different um, social movements to, to achieve these things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, very little study about what they actually meant within the institution and how precisely they were used and what patients' experience must might have been. The things that I've come across that have struck me So when there's this debate going on about restraint uh, and mechanical restraint, as it was called, and seclusion, the use of the single room, um, so some there are arguments. It's hard to imagine, but there are arguments made against seclusion and in favor of mechanical restraint. Okay, by people that saw themselves as humanitarians, and and so they said, surely it's better if a patient can't be trusted to be have the freedom of their limbs. Surely it's better that they be out and about with other patients in the common rooms and the corridor outside in the garden in a straitjacket, but being able to walk than being locked in a room. Yeah? And that's, that's a startling idea for us. Um, but that, you know, that was a seriously held conviction. That, that to, and, and it was all tied up, in fact, uh, 
And these de- none of these debates are new. It was tied up with a fierce debate at the time about solitary confinement in prisons. Because the solitary systems and the silent systems were being you know, more and more widespread in Britain, right around the non-restraint time of the non-restraint movement, they're building Pentonville Prison, which was a real experiment in solitary confinement in the silent system. Um, uh, people are looking to those systems and, and seeing that solitary confinement is driving people mad. And so they say, how can we uh, embrace the same kinds of techniques in an institution that's supposed to cure people of madness? And, and some of those people then say restraint is a better option. Restraint, physical, mechanical restraint is a better option. So you see that the, the impulse behind, the impulse to control people's movements and to it's, there's a lot there about asylum management and how many staff there were, the, the idea that to, just to, any destruction of the physical fabric was something to be avoided at all costs. Um, yeah. So that, that's the kind of thing I've come across. Mm-hmm. So in, in prisons, if the solitary confinement cell is a prison within the prison, then the prison within the prison is mechanical restraints used uh, primarily on people who are, so there are these uh, emergency response teams, various names, but they're basically a SWAT team that will go into a cell if someone is not uh, in compliance with prison rules, uh, according to the judgment of a prison administrator, and extract them from that cell and may put them in four-point restraints, so where they're Uh, Wrists and ankles are fastened either to a table or to the floor or to a chair. There are these restraint chairs that often have restraint chairs. I saw, so in the U.S., there are all of these um, companies that produce these products. like They come from somewhere. And uh, I saw an advertisement geared towards prison administrators that had a, a restraint chair and the the advertising slogan was, it's like a padded cell on wheels. Really? And wow. so, yeah. So I wonder, why would they say that? It, okay. it doesn't make sense. Uh, right. So, it, I mean, it's kind of invoking it's this says, yeah. therapeutic device, like, and also implying that the person you put in that restraint chair uh, has mental health problems. Mm. And that's, like, are they bad or are they mad or... Mm. You know, I don't know. And it's rendering the person harmless, I guess. It's rendering them harmless, yeah. Yeah. To themselves or other people. Yes. And so um, these restraint chairs are often accompanied then. So so what is your, what's your weapon of last resort or what do you have, what resistance is possible if all of your limbs are fastened to a chair? You still have spit. You still have your bodily fluids. And often in solitary confinement, your bodily fluids are what you use to resist, which is why there's often plexiglass, even if there are open bars, plexiglass around those open bars to make sure that people can't use their body fluids to uh, make contact with people in the hallway outside. So in addition to these mechanical restraints, a spit hood is usually used. Those, there's a lot of attention to those in Britain, spit hoods. Yeah, they're very controversial uh, uh-huh. for, for, that are used when people are initially restrained, being arrested and taken into prison. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's, there's something, so in terms of, I guess, what upsets the public when they see it mm. and what doesn't upset the public, yeah. the spit hood, I think with the, 
visual connotation both of Guantanamo Bay mm. and also sometimes these spit hoods kind of look like a bit of a KKK kind of uh, mm. white mesh and it's not nice to look at. Mm. And, and so, yeah, one of the things that... The dehumanization seems that much more extreme, perhaps, yeah. although it shouldn't but seem more extreme. Also but it's also maybe yeah. a red herring, you know, like mm. to, to mm. think more, more broadly and deeply about the power relations that uh, produce technologies like spit, spit hoods is more important than being offended by the spit hood mm. and feeling like it reflects badly on us. Thank you. Your, your discussion has been just fascinating so far. Thank you so much. Your, your reference just now to technology reminds me of a question I wanted, I wanted to ask about science. Because one of the single rooms that's um, evoked in Virginia Woolf's essay is um, also the laboratory. She talks about two young women scientists, yeah. scientists that share a laboratory. And it makes me wonder um, about a few things. You know, first of all, just the relationship between the single room and the laboratory mm -hmm. in the context of what you've been talking about. But also the relationship between science and the penitentiary and the asylum and the kind of scientific work that's done in them. Mm -hmm. So perhaps thinking then about the lab field distinction mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. these places uh, and these geographies of knowledge right. as well. Thank you. <laughs> you want to jump in? You can have that one. Yeah. Mm, so... I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is thinking about experiments on people in prison. Um, and so there, there is some research, usually research on solitary confinement and the, the impact of solitary confinement on people who are incarcerated happens only because there's a class action lawsuit and so an expert witness is allowed to go into the prison. Um, ex research that might favor prisoners or that might problematize prison practices is not something that the prison typically encourages and courts are very reluctant to challenge the uh, prison administrator's own uh, attestations of what their security needs are. And so there's actually very little research on the long-term impact of solitary confinement for this reason. Um, but there has been, there's a long history of research on prisoners and using uh, very stable, often very stable prison populations as a kind of ideal laboratory for testing um, pharmaceuticals, uh, retinol, the, the eye thing <laughs> was tested on uh, people in prison, uh, skin creams. Uh, so at, I think it's called Holmesburg Prison in Pennsylvania, um, uh, there's one very striking image of a man's back that has been turned into a checkerboard, uh, and his, his back has been used as a canvas to test various skin creams, and there are like chemical burns on his back. Um, as a result of these, <clears throat> the recruitment of prisoners, sometimes with individual consent forms, but under circumstances where consent is practically meaningless and is acknowledged as meaningless in other contexts, such as the PREA, or the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which does not recognize any possibility of consent, consensual sex in prison. Um, but even right here, 
in the relationship between Queens and Prison for Women and KP, there are sort of long-standing research relations. Um, there have been psychological experiments on people at P4W conducted by Queens graduate students and professors. Um, there was a an ex very controversial experiment uh, that was not conducted by Queens faculty or, or graduate student, but was supervised by a Queens graduate who was the psychiatrist for P4W, where women were administered uh, LSD and electroshock therapy. And uh, so, so in some ways, the, the prison itself and these experiments with, let's put them in darkness, let's have them in 24-hour light, let's, uh, you know, let's try this, let's try that, let's have sensory deprivation, let's have therapeutic environments, constitutes the prison itself as an experiment or a series of experiments. But also within that domain, the very uh, kind of social relations that, that constitute people in prison as a, a, a group of people that don't have a whole lot of control over their own movement renders the prison an ideal site for many uh, scientific experiments that, that basically use prisoners as sort of lab rats. And of course, in the psychiatric context, there's this you know, very, very um, close connection with, uh, with research and with medical research and medical practice. Um, you know, it, it's a hospital. Um, and, uh, and the connection, so there, there is always a worry on the part, in fact, of the, the traditional asylum doctor that they are remote from the centers of research, actually. Um, there's, it's the issue of where these places, so Chris Philo, who we both know, who's a historical geographer who's worked on asylums, talks about where asylums are cited. Um, and the remoteness of them is often a, an issue for um, the careers of the doctors who end up there because they don't have that connection <laughs> with, uh, with the medical school or with, um, with sites of, of research. Um, and I see that in the German and Austrian context as well. Um, uh, and the, the other issue with asylums is that the, there is a, you know, throughout the whole history of, of, um, of the building of these institutions, there's a desire to, to make them closer to domestic settings. And so that has to do with trying to soften the clinical quality of these spaces or, or trying to, um, to make them somehow familiar and domestic-seeming. And that obviously is its, its intention with them as spaces of science. Um, and so I, I've, another aspect of my work is to, been, to, to look at mortuary buildings uh, in asylum complexes. Um, and they are extremely interesting kind of double-facing buildings where uh, part of them have, has to do with, uh, with funerary rites. Um, and so they're an acknowledgement of the fact that patients uh, often die in these institutions, even though they're supposed to be curative institutions. Uh, so they, and, but the funerary rites are part of, um, you know, some sort of normal life in a way, like just as an, anyone who dies ends up um, having a funeral. But then the other part of the same building is to do, has, is the space for autopsies and, um, and for uh, investigations of brain matter and, uh, you know, all feeding into neurological studies in quite a direct way in the Viennese sense, because Vienna was a, a real home of neurological research, a lot of which happened in asylum settings. 
Um, yeah, so, so there, there are a lot of different things going on there. How the single room fits out into all of that, it's, it could be studied. Yeah, I don't, I, I couldn't, I'm not quite sure yet. One thing that occurs to me is that, that part of the power dynamic of a single room in an institutional setting is, of course, you have no control over who comes into the room to see you, right? right? Yeah. And often that is going to be a medical visitor of some kind who will then want to do certain things, and you're you're in a you know that you know, that physical movement of having someone enter the room, and then it becomes their room in a way. It becomes the doctor's consulting room, or is right. it your room, or what right. is it? Yeah. Or do you leave the room and go to some other space that is more obviously controlled by the doctor and more obviously a medical setting? That would be interesting to study how, how that works. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there were, um, so I guess I was wondering, and I'm going to try to put a few different ideas together, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more, tease out. I guess as you were talking, I was thinking about that question of whether both psychiatric institutions or prisons are intended to be this project of redemption or containment. And I was really thinking about that question that you kind of raised very glancingly in terms of um, Guards, and I know particularly in the current context, a lot of the time there's very little social class difference between mm -hmm. guards and um, the prisoners that they're looking after. And so I guess I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the ways in which that relationship of solitude or solitary, like are there expectations for how that informs whether guards are expected to just be laboring bodies or if it's this kind of, because again, I may be reading too much into it, but when you're both speaking, it, it became almost easy to think of the anticipated body of the guards and this kind of almost mm -hmm. guards as architecture, this sort of hardness that one comes to expect, but it's actually far more blurry. So I guess I was just wondering, you know, both what measures there are to ensure um, the correctional officers either are in com community with themselves or solitary and how that relates to kind of yeah, what the project of the prison is supposed to do for them or if it's supposed to do anything for them at all. Right, so, yeah, really interesting series of questions. Um, so so if, we, if we take as our example sort of a, a contemporary prison which is on this, designed usually on this pod model, um, there would typically be one correctional officer assigned to a pod that might have 200 people in it, and uh, because you are, you're you're not meant to be circulating around. Right. And uh, in the you know in the earlier penitentiary system, you're precisely meant to be circulating around and and watching con continually either from the hub of the Panopticon or walking up and down the ranges. Um, the technologies designed to remotely open and close doors and to have access <clears throat> to. Uh, you know, a broad range of spaces at once through cameras also presuppose that the correctional officer is separated. Right. Um, and the training of correctional officers, at least in Tennessee where I'm most familiar, but I think that this is sort of generalizable, is uh, it reinforces the sense that you are utterly separate from those people. Even if you think well, actually, we grew up in the same neighborhood or, you know, but for a few lucky accidents, I might be on the other side of the bars. No, there's a, there's a reinforcement of an, of an opposition and a kind of non-engagement. So the, the chaplain at the prison 
the chaplain uh, <laughs> where I volunteered said, I know the name of every inmate in this institution. Inmate. That's the name. <laughs> inmate, come here. Inmate, in your room. And they often call mm. themselves your room. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, but you can't actually effectively do your job, which is to manage a large group of people where you are outnumbered and where all kinds of things happen um, that are ideally not supposed to happen. Like people use chewing gum to pop the locks. Uh, and so you're supposed to be in control of all the doors, but then suddenly all these people are out in the pod and somehow you're supposed to regain control of the situation. So I think um, the, the interface between the design of the prison and, and the guard's own body, uh, which is also in, anticipated as a potential security threat, as a potential vector of contraband coming in and out and a, and a source of corruption, potential corruption, as well as, um, you know, presumed authority to, and security. That, that that interface between the guard's body and the technology is very fraught and that usually people, in order to do their jobs and to survive in a space like that, have to resist the technology uh, or find ways of managing those, those rules and uh, the space and the machines that govern that space in their own way, just as people who are incarcerated, although in different ways, um, try to figure out what are the cracks and fissures in this, in this uh, space and this technology that will allow me to survive in here. Um, in psychiatric context, the, um, I mean, what interests me about that is that idea that the, you've got this fixed, that, that not only the prisoners are fixed in their cells, but the guard is also fixed yeah, in a kind right. of room type yes. thing, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Surrounded by screens. Exactly. I mean, it's a much more uh, connected kind of room, but still a room. Of sort, yes. um, or at least a fixed space. Um, so the the institutions that I study are much more like those old penitentiaries, where where it, um, yes, those attendants or whatever you want to call them, nurses, are much are out there in the public spaces and they circulate and move. Um, there are in the floor plans. Uh, attendance rooms labeled. And in these, these older style institutions, the expectation would be that all of those people would live in the institution. Um, and so they would live, and, and that it would be, a, that's something I'd like to do at some point is try to compare um, the accommodation for patients and the accommodation for, for attendance. Mm. Um, the, it tends to be small dormitory style. Um, so not single rooms, but not enormous dormitories either. Uh, and and it tends to be so in a in a pavilion style system, which uh, the book that I've just written is about these so-called villa style asylums that were split into individual structures for each different type of patient. Um, you would have um, space for the nurses in each of those buildings rather than in some separate building. Yeah. And there were other structures on the edge of these institutions called nurses' villages. Um, where uh, the, there would often be families uh, that worked in the institution. So you'd have a married couple who both worked there, and they would live um, in the, the kind of married flats. We were talking about this at Cambridge. So, so in the married accommodation. But they would be, have patients billeted with them uh, in a, a kind of transition 
arrangement where they were being prepared to be released into living again in the outside world. Um, and these spaces were deliberately located just outside the boundaries of the institutions. But those were, um, yeah, there were no single rooms in those at all. Those were very much a kind of what was seemed as seen as appropriate for a family of that class. And again, it kind of assumes a parity of class between the patients and the, and the nurses. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't find that, say, the doctors, they also have accommodation there, because you can compare that to, that's much more bourgeois and has many more um, smaller rooms, right? So a study for the doctor, uh, um, individual rooms for the children, that type of thing. But in these um, nursing villages, they're much smaller, of course, the units, but the idea is, you know, shared bedroom for all the children, shared bedroom, a couple patients, and they would share a bedroom. The merit the, the married couple would have their bedroom and then everyone would have one big common space where they would spend most of their time or outdoors, yeah. So, it, um, yeah, it's that kind of idea that it, the working classes don't have private space as, a, uh, as an expectation in their domestic um, scenarios. And there that's embodied in these kind of artificial spaces within the institution, mm. pseudo-domestic spaces. That's really interesting. So I went to Parchman Prison in uh, Mississippi, which used to be literally a, a slave plantation and then was converted to penitentiary after the partial abolition of slavery. And they had uh, spaces for uh, especially the emergency response team, but other workers to live with their families mm -hmm. on the prison grounds. And so as you came in, there were these houses, they're sort of like that shotgun style house, almost like a trailer, but not a trailer. Yeah. And there were tricycles and, you know, uh, satellite TV dishes. And it was very much like this domestic space, these rows of houses, almost identical to what you would see outside the, the prison boundaries, but, um, but actually kind of uh, more, more modern, a little bit more uh, well-maintained. Like you could see a kind of uh, difference in, in poverty mm -hmm. where if you were living on prison grounds, you'd have a, a little bit more affluence than if you were li living outside of the prison. Mm -hmm. um, but this was, you know, families growing up in spaces that where it's a vast... Um, area of land that is still farmed. It provides most of the food. There's a factory farm for pigs, a factory farm for chickens. They grow greens and, and other vegetables, and they provide almost all the food for the Mississippi prison system there. It also happens to have like about 17 <laughs> prisons on campus. So it's like a little world. Mm. It's, a, it's a plantation prison. Mm but also with these domestic spaces for yeah. lower middle class people, mm. but at a somewhat higher class level than if you were left to your own devices outside of that. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. I can we, say can, more about that. We, can, we can take one more then. We'll, we'll overstay our welcome in this room of our own. <laughs> <laughs> we'll occupy the world Thank you both for a very stimulating presentation. Uh, you hinted at this a little bit, but could you say more about um, virtual spaces, imagined communities, um, from flows of information um, in and out in the form of letters to uh, today with more advanced technology, ways that um, 
that might be employed for, for various purposes or, or constrained and limited. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is actually the, the artwork that the people I worked with at Riverbend uh, produced. And, and so we organized, even though we were sort of loosely a philosophy discussion group, we organized an art exhibition that then uh, uh, gained the attention of some actual art professors who then started a, an art uh, group, arts and crafts group in the prison, and they did all kinds of really interesting collaborative art. But one of the first pieces that came out of that um, initial exhibition was this extraordinary diorama where one of the guys in our discussion group, Derek Quintero, had uh, used that sort of architectural foam board to create a cell, but then to split it open. So you had two sides of it, and on one side, he used a red, white, and blue string to create a grid that filled the entire space. And he said, that's how the US prison system organizes your space and time in prison. Um, and on the other side, he put, uh, he, he cut his own hair and he used bits from his own uh, prison-issued uniform uh, and created a little effigy of himself. Uh, and he surrounded himself with books, like little, he created little cardboard books. Um, and he said, in the midst of this total structuring of your space and time, you also have the capacity to to transform yourself and to open up a kind of virtual space beyond that, uh, the confines of yourself. And then I was going to mention this when you were talking about uh, kind of plumbing wells and that and these sort of peripheral spaces adjacent to the cells where all of the electricity and so forth is. So he, he created the, a little secret space that opened up, which was the plumbing well that uh, separates each cell from the next in at Riverbend. And there, if you knew it was there, you could open it up and there was uh, uh, an image of the outside. So he was from Kentucky and it was uh, you know, river, hills, and uh, a ladder and, <laughs> and kind of details of his three escapes from prison. So <laughs> it, it was both a, a kind of like a, a, a documentation of his, his literal, literal um, escapes, but also a kind of um, a secret he could share with some of the people who would interact with the art of this virtual space that opens up uh, that also has a kind of materiality. It has color and it has light, uh, but it, it comes from the most cramped and, and most overlooked space in the prison space between the cells. Mm. The, the connection that I can think of, so I've been interested in um, single rooms beyond institutional contexts as well. And the, there is a long, long kind of trope of the single room as a, as a portal then to lots of other things. So if you think of the cabinet of curiosities uh, is in a way a kind of single room. And there's a whole um, genre of art uh, depicting, you know, the, the scholar in his study or the antiquarian or, or, um, or the kind of monk in his grotto type of thing that it's, uh, that the, the room is then a container and kind of con um, condensing of all sorts of, um, 
of channels out into the world beyond and uh, and a place to display as way collections that have been amassed um, for, that, that re refer to things beyond that space. And there's something I think that's very compelling about the uh, about the constraint of the space and then the connections that are then implied with all these objects to some other world, you know, something very distant. Um, and uh, um, yes, that, that's, that's what that makes me think of. And in my talk tomorrow, I, I won't give it away now, but there is an example of that within an institution too. It makes me think of your opening example of Kafka in his room mm. with this t very tight constraint and yet opening up this amazing virtual world, mm -hmm. but also recruiting the help of someone to, yes. to, to it was, I'm create I'm those remembering that it was a letter. It wasn't a diary, actually. It was a letter to his girlfriend. Uh -huh. and she was the one that was supposed <laughs> to have the key. Yeah. <laughs> And she was also the one that was supposed to ferry the snacks and things, <laughs> of course. you know, and then shut <laughs> the door and lock it honey. again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With but, a servant of one's own. Yes. yes. <laughs> Who is also the, the jailer keeper, of my own. The jailer of my own, that's right, yeah. Exactly. Well, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> A brilliant segue and brilliant sort of closure um, to 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 close our space here. Um, I want to thank you both um, for this conversation, and I want to thank you, of course, and I'd like to thank the Agnes. And uh, I guess I can say until the next fireside chat. Thanks again to everybody, and thank you both very much. Pleasure. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's University composer Marian Mozedich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>